Highland Falls, El Paso, Clarksville, Watertown, and from other important military capitals around the globe. Eye on Defense brings the top military and defense issues into focus. Eye on Defense is proudly sponsored by Big Sarge Pre-Owned TA-50 Emporium and The Last Hope Jewelry and Pawn. And now, citizens of Earth, brace yourselves for the next episode of Eye on Defense. Defense, 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 defense. <clears throat> All right, we're back, everybody. It's, this is 9 August, and it's episode 152. It's pretty late at night. It's Wednesday night around 1130. Uh, I'm going to get started now so I can go to bed. I've got about, I don't know, seven or eight stories. I'm going to start off with the Navy, then we're going to go talk about Iran a little bit. And then there's the uh, Space and Missile Defense Symposium at Redstone, Alabama. we got a few stories from that. And then finish up with the defense news story about from General Rainey, six questions, I think six, an article from Defense News. So Navy story, we'll start right at the beginning. Defense News, Jeff Zelewski, I can't say his name, uh, new author, I haven't done a story from him, from 9 August today, Navy extends service lives of four more destroyers. U.S. Navy plans to extend the service life of four guided missile destroyers that were slated to be retired in the coming years, adding four or five years to each warship's standard 35 years of service. Who knew that a warship was supposed to last 35 years? Didn't know that. Under a plan announced last week, the destroyers Ramage and Benfold will see their service lives extended to fiscal year FY 2035 and FY 2036, respectively, according to the Navy. The destroyers Mister and Milius will each have their service lives extended by four years to FY34 and FY35, respectively. The Mister was commissioned 29 years ago, while Ramage entered service 28 years ago. The Benfold and Milius joined the fleet 27 years ago. The move follows a similar service life extension announced in March for the Arleigh Burke, the first destroyer in the class. The U.S. Navy has 73 Arleigh Burke-class destroyers in service and is continuing to evaluate the feasibility of extending each ship's service life. Uh, here's a quote from uh, one of the officials. The original 35-year li life of the Arleigh Burke-class was based on an expectation that they would become too obsolete before they got too old to maintain. With increasingly digital ages, combat system upgrades are getting easier and less expensive. So that's why they're hanging them around a little bit longer. And while we're talking about the U.S. Navy, this is kind of an older story, but um, 7 August, a couple of days ago, from Defense Post, thousands of U.S. sailors and Marines reached Red Sea after Iran tensions. We kind of talked about a similar story previously. This is from the staff. More than 3,000 U.S. military personnel has, have arrived in the Red Sea aboard two warships as part of increased deployments after tanker seizures by Iran, U.S. Navy said on Monday, uh, which was just a couple days ago. The U.S. sailors and Marines entered the Red Sea on Sunday after transi transiting the Suez Canal in a pre-announced deployment, U.S. Navy's 5th Fleet said in a statement. They arrived on board the USS Bataan and USS Carter Hall warships, providing greater flexibility and maritime capability to the 5th Fleet, a statement added. U.S. military says that Iran has either seized or attempted to take control of nearly 20 internationally flagged ships in the region 
over the past two years. The USS Bataan is an amphibious assault ship that can carry fixed wing and rotary, rotary aircraft as well as landing craft. USS Carter Hall is a dock landing ship which transports Marines and their gear and lands them ashore. The deployment comes after Washington said its forces blocked two attempts by Iran to seize commercial tankers in international waters off Oman on 5 July. Uh, Maritime Services in Iran has said that the two tankers, the Bahamian-flagged Richmond Voyager, had collided with an Iranian vessel, seriously uh, injuring five crew members. In April and early May, Iran seized two oil tankers within one week in regional waters. These incidents came after Israel and the United States blamed Iran in November for what they said there was a drone strike against a tanker operated by an Israeli-owned firm carrying gas off the coast of Oman. The United States announced last month it would deploy a destroyer, an F-35 and F-16 warplanes, along with amphibious readiness group, Marine Expeditionary Unit to the Middle East to deter Iran from seizing ships in the Gulf. Now, here's an interesting last paragraph. Last week, a U.S. official said that Washington is also preparing to deploy Marines and Navy personnel above com- aboard commercial tankers transiting the Gulf as an additional layer of defense. Now, that seems interesting to me. So I did a little research, and then, yep, sure enough, this is an older story, 3 August from AP. U.S. military may put armed troops on commercial ships in the Strait of Hormuz to stop Iran's seizures. Uh, this is from... C. Baldor and John Gombrel. Again, 3 August. The U.S. military is considering putting armed personnel on commercial ships traveling through the Strait of Hormuz in what will be unheard of action aimed at stopping Iran from seizing and harassing civilian vessels, American officials told the AP on Thursday, about a week ago. Putting United States troops on commercial vessels could further deter Iran from seizing vessels, or it could escalate tensions further. The contemplated move would also represent an extraordinary commitment in the Middle East by U.S. forces as the Pentagon tries to focus on Russia and China. While U.S. officials offered few details of the plan, it comes as thousands of Marines and sailors on both the amphibious warship Bataan and USS Carter Hall, a landing ship, are on their way to the Persian Gulf, which we talked about. Those Marines and sailors could provide the backbone for any armed guard mission in the Strait, which about 20% of the world's crude oil passes. Iran's mission to the United Nations did not respond to a request for comment from AP. But hours later, Iran's state-run news agency acknowledged the proposal citing this AP report. Five U.S. five now, five U.S. officials who spoke on the condition of anonymity, not one, not two, not three, not four, five, uh, acknowledged the broad details. The officials stressed no final decision has been made and discussions continue between the United States military officials and America's Gulf Arab allies allies in the region. Uh, Officials said the Marines and Navy sailors would provide security only at the request of ships involved. One official described the process as complex, saying that any deployment likely also would require approval of the country under which the ship is flagged and the country under which the ship owner is registered. So far, this is yet to happen. It might not happen for some time. At the Pentagon, our old friend Brigadier General Pat Ryder was asking about the plans and would only say he has no announcements to make on the matter. 
More broadly, however, he noted that additional ships, aircraft, and Marines have been deployed to the Gulf region. Uh, this effort by U.S. partners, he said, is aimed at ensuring the Strait of Hormuz remains open, there's freedom of navigation, and we're deterring any type of malign activity. Uh, almost done. Uh, earlier on Thursday, a week ago, Vice Admiral Brad Cooper, head of the Navy's Middle East Base 5th Fleet, met with head of Gulf Cooperation Council, the six-nation bloc, which includes Bahrain, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, or Qatar, however you want to say it, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, while a statement from the GCC did, about the meeting did not hint at the proposal, it did say that Cooper and officials discussed strengthening GCC and United States cooperation and working with international and regional partners. Uh, the, the Baton and Carter Hall left Norfolk, Virginia on 10 July on a mission to the Pentagon described as in response to recent attempts by Iran to threaten the free flow of commerce in the Strait of Hormuz. The ships made port visit earlier this week in Greece, drawing closer to the Middle East. Uh, the deployment has captured Iran's attention, with the chief diplomat telling neighboring nations that the region doesn't need foreigners, pro foreigners in quotations, providing security. On Wednesday, a week ago, the Iran paramilitary Revolutionary Guard launched a surprise military drill on disputed islands in the Persian Gulf with swarms of small, fast boats, paratroopers, and missile units taking part in the story. Hadn't been tracking that, but I am now. All kinds of crazy stuff going on in the world. So let's get to this uh, Space and Missile Defense Symposium. There's quite a few stories from it, from Breaking Defense and uh, Defense Post. In fact, how many do I have? The next three stories are from it. I could have did more, but I only picked these three. Real quick, what is the Space and Missile Defense Symposium? Uh, it is a leading educational and professional development and network event in the space and missile defense community. The symposium is widely attended by leaders and professionals from the United States and allies around the world. Of course, they're doing this in the Rocket City, Huntsville, Alabama, at the Von Braun Center. It goes from 8 to 10 August, and so it ends tomorrow. Some of the guest speakers they have, they have uh, Major General Sean Ganey. I think he is like the counter-UAS the Joint Counter-UAS Guru, if it'll open. Yep, he's a director of Joint Counter-UAS Office. Heavy-duty position there. Of course, Miss Heidi Hsu. Heavy-duty position there. She's the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. Who else they got? And Mr. Willie Nelson. Not the Willie Nelson you're thinking of. He is an SES, Senior Executive Service, and currently serves as the Deputy to the Commanding General of Army Futures Command. And we're going to talk about him a little bit at the very end. Mr. Willie Nelson, not the one you're thinking of. All right, so let's go to our first story. If I can find it, uh, we'll do lasers. A couple of laser stories. You know I dig those laser stories. Ashley Roquet, so th th these stories, uh, next few stories, I think all of them. Yeah. They're either from Ashley Roquet or Jen Judson. Two of my favorite authors. The only th person missing is Tim Martin, right? Uh, here it is. Maintaining lasers for counter-drone protection can be a struggle in a remote location. This is from officials Ashley Roquet, 8 August, yesterday. This is a great quote from Lieutenant General Dan Carbler. Lasers are complicated. Uh, I just screwed it up. Lasers are complicated. This is not a Humvee that's sitting in a motor pool, said Lieutenant General Dan Carbler. I love that quote. 
I'm stealing that. <laughs> All right, here we go. The U.S. Army has discovered a new obstacle in this quest to use high-energy lasers to defend soldiers and installations against a growing threat of drones. Some of these systems have been proved difficult to maintain in remote locations. No surprise there. And here's a quote again from General Daniel Carbler, head of U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command and Joint Functional Component Command for Integrated Missile Defense. That's a heck of a title for Lieutenant General Carbler. Here's his quote. Lasers are complicated. This is not a Humvee that's sitting in a motor pool. I'm so much stealing that. Many of the, many of the some of the main laser components you're not going to have in a supply room or a maintenance office full of repair parts. Those are going to be the ones that are going to have to be built out. End the quote. And then we have a quote from Major Sean Ganey, the director of Joint Counter- UAS, he agreed. He told an audience here, again, this is SMD in Huntsville. He told an audience here that lasers as counter-drone systems from a training perspective and organizational perspective, things are proceeding relatively quickly. It's the sustaining aspect that we have to do better if we want to scale this across the force. Of course, I'm reminded of a quote that General Rainey uses, who was the AFC commander, who we got a story at the end of the show. Uh... Fielding kit without uh, integration is just equi- fielding equipment without integration is just kit, not capability. So integration is all those things we talk about over and over on this show. Is it's not just giving a soldier a piece of kit. You have to you have to teach an operator how to use it. You have to teach a leader how to employ it. You have to teach a, a, a soldier how to repair it. You have to train on it. You have to train leaders on it. Uh, you got to have a supply chain to fix it. I mean, all that stuff that goes with it. You just can't hand it to a commander in the field and say, good luck. Uh, enough of that. Uh, to date, this is what I didn't know. To date, the Army has sent 10 kilowatt high energy lasers to, Afri- to AFRICOM, CENTCOM, and Indo-Pacific Command for operational assignments. How about that? 10 kilo- uh, has sent 10 kilowatt high energy lasers to AFRICOM, CENTCOM, and Indo-Pacific for operational assessments with plans to send a 20-kilowatt platform to CENTCOM, Candy said. Nothing in UCOM, huh? Uh, in addition to continuing to fuel counter-UAS systems already in the inventory, Ganey's team has been testing out newer systems at various demonstrations, including one in June at Yuma Proving Ground in Arizona, where the Army tested five company solutions against a single Group 3 one-way attack unmanned aerial system known as a suicide drone. Of course, a Group 3 UAS is up to 1,320 pounds. I think Group 2 is, I'm only guessing here, I think it's 55. So between Group 2 and Group 3, there's a lot of of wiggle room, right? Uh, In June of 24, the service will conduct its fifth such demo, and this time will focus on technology to down drone swarms, according to a slide Ganey showed during the audience, to the audience. That's the end of story. I didn't want to go too crazy on it. Bottom line, I think the most important part of that is that the Army has 10 kilowatt lasers operational in AFRICOM, CENTCOM, and Indo-Pacific. That, I thought that was unbelievable. And then plans to send a 20 kilowatt to CENTCOM, probably where they need it, right? Uh, we'll get to a second story from Ashley Roquet related to lasers. What am I doing on time? 15 minutes. Uh, here's our second story from August 9th today. Fighting with lasers, Army to experiment with 50 kilowatt laser combined with kinetic air defenses. 
after the Army receives, here we go, after the Army receives its fourth and final striker-based 50-kilowatt laser prototype next month, our soldiers will start to figure out how to use it in combat alongside traditional kinetic weapons. That's according to a three-star Robert Rash, who's, I think, is he the Richto guy? Yeah, he is the Richto guy, which is the Army Rapid Capabilities Critical Technologies Office. Where are they located? Redstone Arsenal. Where's that at? Huntsville, Alabama. Um... We've talked about this for a, quite often, but not for a while. This is the, uh, I think they call it the DEM Shorad, direct energy. Um, basically, it's putting a laser on a striker. So the Army receives its fourth and final striker with a 50-kilowatt laser next month. Here's a quote from the three-star Lieutenant General Robert Rash, who's the Director of Army Rapid Capabilities and Critical Technology Office, RICTO. Uh, what we don't know for, yet from directed energy systems necessarily is how to fight with lasers on the battlefield, how to integrate kinetic and non-kinetic effectors like directed energy and traditional, traditional air defense missiles in the battle space. Uh, Lieutenant General Rash and his team are tasked with overseeing the development of three directed energy programs, including Raytheon's or RTX, work on the striker-based directed energy maneuver short-range air defense system. That's DEM Shorad to down class one to three aerial drones, which is basically zero to 1320 pounds and incoming rockets, artillery and mortars. So far, the company has received, uh, has delivered three prototypes to the army and the service anticipates to receive a fourth one in September. Uh, once the platoon has all four vehicles, these are the strikers we're talking about. They'll begin developing the tactics, techniques and procedures and training with them ahead in an upcoming operational assessment. I'm going to pause right there. I thought the Army had already received all four of those down at Fort Bliss. I think we did an episode on that 100 episodes ago, but apparently they have not. So this is the latest and greatest. Uh, those soldiers will also receive the kinetic variant of the vehicle-based defense known as MSHORAD, so they can test both out together, find out what the right mix of counter-UAS maneuver SHORAD to support the maneuver formation. Of course, the MSHORAD, top of my head, that sucker's armed to the teeth. It's got like, I can't remember what's got on it. It's got like a 30-millimeter cannon on it, uh, Stinger missiles. Uh, I think it's even got Hellfires on it. That thing is armed to the teeth. So they're going to use that MSHORAD and the DE MSHORAD. The DE is the one with the 50-kilowatt laser, which I find fascinating. Uh, moving on. Uh, we're going directed energy because we don't have the magazine depth. This is, again, from Lieutenant General Rash. Quite frankly, we can't afford the magazine depth to have missiles everywhere that we want. So having the capability of directed energy to provide that renewable kilowatt power on a platform is very appealing, but it's got to be affordable and it's got to be reliable. On the reliability front, General Rash cited concerns about sourcing components for the directed energy weapon. On Tuesday, General Daniel Carbler head of the U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command and Joint Functional Co Component Command for Integrated Missile Defense, and Major General Sean Ganey, the Director of Joint Counter Unmanned Aerial Systems Offices, provided more insights into the reliability problem associated with the high-energy lasers. And that's the article that we just talked about a second ago. So the one that says we're talking about lasers here, not a Humvee in the motor pool. So there you go. 
it looks like this stuff is going to work. They're still working out how to use it operationally, and they've got to figure out how to sustain it. All right, have we uh, beat the directed energy? No, we have not. I'll do another story on that whenever I can. Uh, next, what's next? Patriot, uh, Patriot missile story. I think this is from Ashley Roque also. This is all out of this uh, event in Huntsville. Here we go. Ashley Roque, third in a row from 8 August yesterday. U.S. Army wants more Patriot units but faces tough recruiting environment. Senior Army leaders have approved plans to boost the number of Patriot units inside the force in a bid to alleviate the high demand for air defense capability, according to a three-star general. Again, this is Lieutenant General Dan Carbler. Uh, here's a quote from him. Army senior leaders from the Secretary of the Army to the Chief of Staff recognizes the demands on the Patriot Force, and we are addressing that through increasing their Patriot units that are out there. That's from Lieutenant General Dan Carbler. Uh, Carbler declined to specify how many additional air defense assets the service has decided on. Today, there are 15 battalions fielded across the active duty force. The services program funding for a 16th battalion, but it is not manned or field, according to an Army spokesman. Each battalion has four batteries. Four batteries. So what's four times 15? 15 times four, 60. There are 60 batteries of Patriots in the U.S. Army. Who knew that? I did not know that. Good information. Moving on. Uh, here's Carbler again. We have a requirement to grow a Patriot force structure. We will grow a Patriot Fork structure, but it is not as simple as just making the decision. Uh, the push to grow Patriot Force comes after years of high op tempo rates and concern over readiness if there are not enough soldiers to meet the global demand for air defense assets. Uh, here's another quote. Many times soldiers go for six months and get extended to nine months. Many times they deploy for nine months and get extended to 12 months. Sometimes they think they're gonna, their year is going to be extended to 15 months. Uh, this heightened demand is some lawmakers concerned. And then the NDAA FY23 included a sense of Congress regarding the importance of air and missile defense capabilities. The Army was tasked with assessing the validity of an existing battalion and interceptor acquisition objectives and submitting a report. There's always a report, right? Love their homework. Uh, this legislation also provides Army leaders with the authority to grow the Patriot Force up to 20 battalions but it will need additional dollars to actually buy the additional Patriot batteries. So the Army has 15. They're authorized to go to 16. And Congress is saying, we'll give you four more, 20. But then they got to figure out how to pay for all that, right? Is that it? That's it for Patriot. And last story of the night, a good one, is from Jen Judson. She was able to sit down at Fort Liberty, New York, formerly known as Fort Bragg, with... I guess General Rainey. Who was General Rainey? If you're new to the show and you don't know who General Rainey is, General Rainey is the uh, James Rainey. He's the four-star general that's in charge of Army Futures Command. And what, what does Army Futures Command do? They, they write requirements. They do experimentation. Uh, they do concepts. They kind of say, uh, what is the Army going to look like in 2030? Uh, what is the gap between what we want the Army looks like in 2030 and what it looks like today? And then they do experimentation with equipment, and then somebody writes a requirement for the new rifle, the new tank, the new whatever. And then they integrate it into the Army with training and sustainment and all that stuff. Now, once they write their requirement, they give it to 
the Honorable Doug Bush's team. That's where your PEOs, program executive offices are. The requirement goes to, to the that side, the acquisition side, and then the Honorable Doug Bush and the PEOs, they work with industry, they bend the metal, and they, they build whatever it is, the new rifle, the new gloves, the new boots, whatever. And then, of course, they give it to the test community, and the test community tests it, and then they give it to the force, and they integrate it with training and sustainment and repairing and leader employment and all that stuff. That's kind of a one over the world of how the acquisition requirements, integration piece is supposed to, modernization, basically, in a nutshell. So they sat down with General Rainey, the head of U.S. Army Futures Command, four-star command, and they asked him seven questions. Uh, If you want to get the full article, go to Defense News, Jen Judson, 8, 8, uh, 8 August, and read it for yourself. I cut it up because, you know, like the slap chop guy says, we can't do this all day. Uh, so I don't even know if I used all seven questions. Here we go. Uh, Defense News sat down with General Rainey on 27 July while he traveled to Fort Liberty, North Carolina, to address hundreds of soldiers at the Associated United States Army's Warfighter Summit. This interview was edited for length and clarity, and your humble podcast host has further edited it for length and clarity. So here we go. Here's question one. You're nearly one year in as the second general to serve as AFC commander. You've already talked about the need to ensure Army formations will be ready to accept newly developed capabilities in 2030s. Doing the 23rds. How are you approaching this? And this is the answer that I highlighted. Uh, there's deliberate modernization from General Rainey. There's deliberate modernization that everyone's pretty well aware of. It's going very well for a lot of reasons. Consistency. The Army hasn't changed its modernization priorities for five years. U.S. Navy, are you listening? Uh, that's not in the article. That's that's me saying that, not General Rainey, for the record. Uh, we resisted moving the goalposts around and changing requirements. We've got good support, bipartisan support from Congress on our modernization efforts, and they're starting to come in fruition. If you go into the next AK, 2030 to 2040, we're working hard on the next Army operating concept based on big evolutions, unprecedented disruption in terms of technology. Uh, Then a third period of time I'm starting to get more interested is inside two years. Rapid acquisition, the speed of change, the amount of disruption, the character of war is changing. Uh, right now is unprecedented. So inside two years, we need to do a better job of seeing something that's happening on the battlefield in technology out in the Pacific and turning it into a no kidding capability in a formation. It starts with AFC. It's my responsibility to write a clear requirement document, not for a specific piece of material, but for a requirement for a capability and then work with Army Acquisition Chief Doug Bush's acquisition team to work with contracting team, to work with industry, to be able to get something inside two years. Uh, we should be able to see something happen and put it at the leading edge of our formations as a capability with sustainment, with leaders who know how to fight it, with soldiers who know how to use it and to maintain it. Everything I just said, uh, General Rainey just kind of wrapped it up probably as good as I could say it. I won't say better. I'll say as good. No, he could probably say it better than I could say it. Um. There's something important in what he said, though. It's my responsibility to write a clear requirement document, not for a specific piece of material, but for a requirement for capability. So when a requirement writer writes a requirement, he doesn't write a requirement for, um, let me think of something. 
he doesn't write it for a specific piece of equipment. Say you, you go to the, the gun store and you see a, a, a Ruger 1022 rifle that you like. Well, the requirement writer, if the Army needs a small caliber 22 rifle, the requirement writer doesn't get the spec sheet on a Ruger 1022 and write the requirement to that. You write it to the capability it's supposed to fill and then let industry build the best 1022 type rifle it can build and you have a competition and the soldier gets the best of the best. That's that's the idea of, of what he means by writing the capability not and not not materiel with an E, I think. Moving on. Well, I don't think I know. That's what he means. Second question. The requirement for extended fires is absolutely valid requirement. Again, with requirements, right? That's how everything starts. Based on everything we've seen in Ukraine, the relevance of precision fires. The big killer on the battlefield is conventional artillery. Oops, I'm screwing that up. I'm sorry, folks. Second question. What's the status of getting 24 systems in the hands of soldiers by the end of 23? There was some trouble with the extended range cannon and concern it might get delayed. Do you remember the all the stories we talked about six, eight months ago? Uh, 24 systems in 23. This is what uh, Jen Justin's talking about. And here's his answer. 24 and 23 was about putting soldiers, putting equipment in formations or putting it in the hands of soldiers to learn. We've met all 24 systems we said we were going to put in the hands of soldiers. So he answered the question right away. We've done that. We didn't exactly mean we're going to field all 24 systems in 23. It means we're going to put it in the hands of soldiers, get it out of the laboratory, get it off the test equipment. Soldiers are going to use it. So he says the Army's good to go. They've done that. Uh, the requirement, now he's getting to the answer on artillery. The requirement for extended range fires is absolutely valid requirement based on everything we're seeing in Ukraine and the rele- relevance of precision fires. The big killer on the battlefield is conventional artillery, i.e. 155s. That's my comment, not his. That's why there's no 155s in the whole world right now. And high explosive artillery. So it's really a valid requirement whether it's current manifestation of it and how long it takes to field. People get wrapped up in the current version. It's really about requirements. Uh, Next question. What are you drafting? Where are you drafting and the operational concept for beyond the 2030s? When is the expected first iteration? Answer. It's a little early, but we will have 1.0 version of the concept. I would call it an emerging concept. We'll have it out by the fall. How the Army is going to fight as part of a joint force in 2030 to 2040 time frame. Uh, what we found what we found when we updated our current concept when we published multi-domain operations a year ago it's about a five-year process to become doctrine what could be the next evolution of multi-domain operations could be something new i won't tell the answers yet but it'll be include some competencies of of what the army will need to be it will be a theory of victory i'll introduce some new imperatives new things that we need to change that we can't do now. I'll introduce some fundamental changes to the way we organize, train, fight, and how we man, meaning organizations. Uh, next question. You said you want to field more where appropriate within a two-year time frame when technology is read, ready. What have you identified that might fit the bill? Uh, here's his answer. Loitering munitions, smaller and more agile, attributable, unmanned aerial vehicles. We've got some good UAV programs. But we need to be watching what's happening. We need to get into an unmanned aircraft system as a capability. Ground-based rockets and ground-based missiles really focus in our light infantry formations, increase lethality and survivability, counter-UES. We just did some stories on counter-UES, and we need it faster. 
There are commercial network capability software hardware on which we need to go faster. Uh, here's another great question. What other adjustments have you made to the command and why? Good answer here. I did establish a Ford headquarters inside the Pentagon with one of my deputies, Willie Nelson, who we just talked about, right? The deputy of the AFC commander, not the Willie Nelson you're thinking of, and a small team to improve our coordination and synchronization with the Army staff, the Army secretariat, the acquisition staff, the joint staff, and other services, and for better responses from the Congress, which is important, and then there's industry and the media. That is so smart, putting a forward headquarters inside the Pentagon with a deputy. Very smart move. Uh, how many more questions? Last question. Is it, inevitable, is it inevitable that the Army won't deliver all of the 35 priority programs it set out to deliver by 2030? Excellent question. You remember the 31 plus 4 equals 35? I thought they killed one of them, which was the uh, strategic long-range cannon. I thought... 31 plus 4 became like 30 plus 4. Anyway, good question nonetheless. Uh, here's his answer. We don't plan to fail if we didn't think we could absolutely, if we didn't think that we absolutely needed them, and if we didn't think we could do it, we wouldn't be doing them. Okay. We have modernization efforts. We have enduring systems. We have good kit now. It's going to be good kit, and we're going to have that in the 2030s. And then we have some legacy stuff that's probably not part of the future. If we're going to take risk in fiscal stuff, then we'll do it with a legacy fleet. And that's it. I think there are six questions. I skipped one of them. Uh, end of article. Excellent article by Jen Judson, as usual. Excellent articles from Ashley Roquet. Where are we at? 33 minutes. Man, I, I kind of like this episode. Very good episode to me. I hope you enjoy it. And that's it. It's uh, 33 minutes and 50 seconds. This is episode 152 in the books. I got to get to bed. It's almost midnight. Work tomorrow. Uh, thank you very much for listening and good night.